So sometimes I am incapable of seeing things that are right in front of my face. Uh, just this past week, I go to the pantry, I open the door, I look in, and, and I'm looking for a box of crackers, and I've been assured that said box of crackers is actually in the pantry, and I'm assured that they're there somewhere, that they do exist, and yet after about like five minutes, I'm despairing of life. And, and then a few minutes later, I'm like considering, should I just drive to the store? Would it be faster? And then my wife comes over and <laughs> grabs them immediately out of the pantry, puts them in my hand and pats me on the head and walks away. Now, I've been told that this has something to do with the corpus callosum, the male-female brain, that there's some f- factor there. But, um, but if you dig into this a bit, you will find that this is not just a gender thing. This is not a male-female thing. This is a human thing. That if you just read just the smallest bit of like science on this, you, you will find that our brains, our brains don't let us see everything that actually comes into our eyes. That our brains interpret this for us. Like if we took in everything that was coming at us right now, it would be too much information, too much for us to process that, that our brains do this thing where, get this, they automatically filter what we're seeing so that we only see a small portion of what's actually coming in. Automatically. So, this is the explanation. When I open the pantry, my brain says, this is not important. <laughs> and I'm functionally blind when I open the pantry. But get this, it, it gets worse. Um, not only do our brains automatically filter everything we see, they automatically interpret everything we see. It's like on your phone that has an autocorrect set. Like your brain has an autocorrect. When it takes a visual image, it immediately wants to correct it. And you can, you can see this. This is how optical illusions work, right? So something comes in to your eyes, and your brain does the autocorrect, but the autocorrect doesn't quite work, so your brain goes berserk. So, um, so let me ask you, uh, are those dots white or black? Are those lines straight or skewed? Now, this is the same picture minus the black. Are they straight or skewed? Oh, what's going on? This is, this is my favorite. Are these tables the same size or different? Like, this is the one where I actually have to, like, get out a piece of paper and put it on there, trace it out, cut it out, say, this can't possibly be. But if you take them and you put them side by side, they're identical. Some of you don't believe me. You can take my slides later and we'll, we'll play that game. Our brains have this autocorrect feature, so whatever we see, we don't actually necessarily see. Like, it decides what we see, and then it interprets what we see automatically. Which brings us to this. Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, that according to scriptures, God himself entered into a man, became a man, He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He walked on the earth. God took on flesh. God is with us. Jesus is proof of the promise that God is with us, that he's working in and under and through all things, that God God has not left us to ourselves, that life has meaning. He is the promise that that things don't just happen. He's the promise, John 3.16, that God loves you. God so loved the world, he sent his only son. He's the promise that if we would just have eyes to see, we would see God working everywhere. So it's plain to see. 
except that it isn't. Except it's entirely impossible to go through Christmas season, to go through life, and not see God at all. Um, a few years ago, this was suggested as the appropriate visual for holiday season because this is the classic meme of uh, you can see whatever you want. Do you guys remember this? So what is this? This is the nativity. This is Joseph and Mary worshiping before our newborn king. This is Emmanuel, God with us. Or it's an epic battle scene. Two bloodthirsty T-Rex fight to the death in front of a running table saw. Do you see it? So which is it? Which is it? Hmm. We see what our brain wants us to see. We see what we want to see. Which begs the question, when we do not see God in our lives, is it A, because he's not there, or B, Because he's like a box of crackers in the pantry. He's right in front of us, but we don't have eyes to see him. The text we're going to look at today is not a very Christmassy text, but I'm not a very Christmassy guy, except the cufflinks. Um, It's a text, though, that is going to press this issue, this issue that I think is really important for preparing our hearts for Christmas. That if we're going to celebrate God with us, God is with us then we need eyes to see. And so our text for today is going to be Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Luke 4, 14. If you have a Bible, you can turn there or go on your phone. I will have all the key text up here. Um, This is a story that will be familiar to some of you if you've grown up in church. Um, It goes like this. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. All right, so here's your geography lesson for the day. This is kind of the land of ancient Israel, right? In the, in the far south, you have the area surrounding Jerusalem, and this area is the area that in that time, at the, uh, in that ancient world, it was the center of religious, economic, and political power in that part of the world. It's a big deal. If you're smart, successful, important, that is where you live. It is the Manhattan or Philadelphia or Washington, D.C. of ancient Israel, okay? Jesus, of course, though, he didn't come from there. Where did Jesus come from? Nazareth. He was in the north. So Jesus is up north in this area called Galilee, and this place called Nazareth, that's where he grew up. So if if um, Jerusalem is the Manhattan or the Philadelphia of ancient Israel. Nazareth is um, the Spring City. If you don't know what Spring City is, that's my point. <laughs> like, Spring City is a place where you, you happen to be from, but nobody goes there on purpose. <laughs> on purpose? <laughs> like, nobody's like, hey, what do you want to do? Let's go to Spring City. It's never happened. <laughs> To put it more technically, Galilee was full of hardworking, mostly educated people who are uneducated people who regularly form militias. They're specifically worse than Spring City, more like Lancaster County here. We're talking rednecks, rednecks of the ancient Near East. So the other thing you should know about Galileans is where they're located up there is that they are an embattled people. So they pretty much hate everyone who's not like them. 
So to the south, they have the Samaritans. Over on the side, they've got the Phoenicians. They've got the Syrians up there. And then, and then this whole mixture of terrible people around the Sea of Galilee called the Decapolis. These, so they're full of, surrounded by all these people that they just do not like. Now, we don't know this specific timeline, but we know Jesus grew up there, right? And then at some point, he left, went down to the south, and that's where he, he did a whole bunch of stuff. He, he got baptized, he started gathering disciples, started becoming famous as a rabbi. And then at some point, he came north and went to Capernaum, which is up in the north, just outside of Galilee there. And, and then in, in Capernaum, he did some miraculous signs. He, uh, he healed some people and did some crazy things. And then here, when we get back to this text, Luke chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee. That means he come, he's home, his old stomping grounds. He's back in Spring City. Hey guys, I'm back. But now Jesus, the carpenter's son, comes back as Jesus, the miracle-working rabbi. He's famous. In fact, the word there, it says, and news about him spread throughout the entire region. The word news is fame in Greek. It's where we get the word famous. He's famous. He's a big name. Shows up in a small town. And, and not many Galilean carpenter sons ended up becoming famous. So this is a big, big deal. Verse 16. When he went to Nazareth, uh, where he had... Uh, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So, so he's in Galilee in general, teaching in the synagogues. Then he shows up in his hometown. And here's what we're going to see. Um, I want you to picture this scene. I want you to imagine it. Small town church in Spring City. And this guy, he leaves, this carpenter's son, leaves town and then comes back. He's now world famous. Can you imagine the shock? So, Zach... I won't say his last name because you might look him up. Zach is uh, a friend of mine. He, we, we, when we grew up, we wrestled together on the same wrestling team in high school. And um, I know you wouldn't ever guess this by looking at me, but at one time, I was the captain of an elite wrestling team in high school, right? So I would get into those spandex stretchies and pin people to the mat. It was awesome. And um, I know... Here's the thing. Zach and I, we were in the same weight class. If you know anything about wrestling, there's one varsity spot. So that means every time we would come up, you know, who's going to be on varsity, you'd have to do these wrestle-offs and decide who's going to be on the varsity team or not. Now, um, the thing you need to know about wrestling is that you learn this really quickly. There's two types of people in wrestling. There are those who are just unbreakable. Like they, they have this mental resolve that mental toughness is, is as important as physical toughness in wrestling. And if they, if they will not break mentally, that means the only way you can possibly beat that guy is if you say one step ahead, you're a little bit faster, a little bit stronger. You gotta push, push, push to the very last second or they are going to beat you, period. Every time. But there's another type. Which I should say, maybe they're a little more delicate. And they might be strong or they might be smart or whatever, but if, if as soon as something hurts a little too much, as soon as it gets a little too hard or they feel like they're losing, they break mentally and they just collapse on themselves. All right? Zach was more delicate. And so I, I don't say this bragging, but I don't think the boy ever beat me ever. Right? Like, this guy, I can make him whimper to his mommy. Like, I would throw him around like a rag doll, and he'd be crying, and, and I would feel bad, but it was so fun. 
and he chose to do it. So, so I'm just, you know, a couple years ago then, I got um, a friend request on Facebook from Zach. And I thought, oh, Zach, how's Zachy doing? Brings back the good old days. I just, I wonder if he's still whimpering somewhere. And I pull up his screen and I see this. <laughs> and I'm like, dear Lord, what happened to Zach? He literally like has like some, 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 some bodybuilding competition named after him. And I'm like, what happened to Zach? What happened to me? <laughs> I hope he's not trying to reconnect so he can wrestle me. Yeah. Okay. So, so <laughs> clear that out of your mind. Um, this is it. Like nobody sees this coming in Nazareth. Nobody sees this coming. Jesus shows up in town. And they're like, "Who's who's speaking in synagogue today?" They're like, "Jesus." You're like, you mean the carpenter's son? <laughs> Like, yeah, he's a famous miracle-working rabbi now. Like, no way! Jesus? Jesus. So, verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So this is the same old synagogue he probably grew up in. And he stood up to read. So this is almost certainly the very synagogue he grew up in. This is like your hometown church. He grew up. He was raised in there. Like so, some of the women in there, they like changed his diapers. And some of the men taught him like little league, how to, how to hit in little league. And, and so, the kids in there are now adults. They grew up with him. They made fun of him as a teenager, right? They know Jesus. They've known him their whole lives. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And, and before I went, before he reads, I want you to picture this. He comes up, he's handed the scroll. And back then they didn't have books, right? Didn't have paper and pages. So they have these giant scrolls, usually sheepskin. And you'd have to unroll it. And Isaiah's a long book. And he's going to search through it. He has to search through the text. No chapter and verses. That was a much later edition. He's re- pulling through the text and everyone's just waiting. What is famous Jesus going to preach to us about today? And he rolls through it, and he rolls through it, and he rolls through it. And finally, finally he stops, and it's like Isaiah 61, like towards the end of the book. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Like they had this rapt attention. They're like they are sitting on the edge of their seats. What's Jesus going to say? And it's not just what's he going to say, but why did he choose this passage? Because this passage was a passage that they all knew. This is a, this is a famous passage. This is a passage that Galileans have been waiting their whole lives to see this fulfilled. And, and I, just a reminder here, when he's reading Isaiah, Isaiah, that scroll, that, that letter has been passed down for 700 years already at this point. For 700 years, the people of God have been waiting for this to be fulfilled. So what's Jesus saying here? He, I, I want you to look back at this text. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. What he's, he reads this passage that Isaiah, he's talking through the voice, first person through this voice of someone. All we know him as is 
the servant of the Lord. And so he's quoting the servant of the Lord. And what does the servant of the Lord said? He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. Do you know um, the Hebrew word for the anointed one? Messiah, that's the name. You know the Greek word for the anointed one? Christ. So he reads this passage. He says, quoting the Messiah. That the Messiah will be sent from God to preach good news to the poor, and not just to the the physically, materially poor, but to the spiritually poor, to those poor in spirit, to those who are desperate, those who know they need God. That the Messiah is going to come, Isaiah says, speaking first person through this. Messiah is going to come, and he's got a message of good news for those who know that they need God. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, release to the oppressed. And the Galileans, they've been under the Roman oppression for centuries now. Like they've been oppressed, they've been enslaved, they've been destroyed materially. This is what they're longing for. And then he finishes with this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Um, This is every seven sevens of years, either the 49th or 50th year. They're not sure how this was reckoned in the Old Testament. But it was declared in the Old Testament that every seven sevens of years, you were to have a year of the Lord's favor. We also call this a jubilee year. So for this one year, during this year, all debts were forgiven. All slaves were set free. No work was to be done. And all property went back to its original owner. If you lost your house... You got it back. If you took someone else's house, they got it back. For a year, there was no rich, no poor, no slaves, no masters. For a year, everyone is just going to be called a child of God. And we're going to celebrate our freedom from slavery, from materialism, from achievements. Like, you don't have to work that year. That year, nobody has a job. You can't get your identity and what you do or what you own. For a year, God proclaims this. The servant of the Lord, when he comes, he'll usher in an era like that. Freedom, recovery, release. Freedom from enslavement, all the material things, from trying to define yourself or make yourself valuable. Freedom from from trying to make yourself valuable how other people view you or through a career or through what you own. Freedom from slavery. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus looks at them and says, I am the servant of the Lord. I am the Messiah. I am the one who will declare the good news to the poor, to those who know they need God. I am the one who will free you from your imprisonment and slavery. I will bring recovery and release and freedom. I am right now proclaiming that you can be set free from your debt of sin, from slavery to stuff, from earning your value. This is the moment you've been waiting for your whole lives. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Like they hear that and they're like, this is amazed. It's the same word marvel in Greek. Like they're marveling. This is amazing. Like, wow, how did a carpenter's son learn how to speak like this? And then in the same breath, they say, wait, wait, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, isn't this the carpenter kid who grew up down the street? Like, isn't this the, the same guy we like made fun of in gym class? 
You can't possibly be the Messiah. Like, we know your family. We taught you. We saw you in your awkward teen years. Like, we made fun of you. We know you. You can't be this. And I want you to hear this. This happens all the time, all the time when people meet Jesus in the Gospels and today. Amazement and unbelief go hand in hand. They're amazed by his words, but they don't believe it at all. They're amazed by Jesus. They marvel at Jesus, but they don't believe in Jesus. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we heard you did in Capernaum. Surely you're going to say to me, why don't you put on a show for us and do some miracles and then we'll talk about this thing. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Now he's going to give us two examples of what this looks like. He says, verse 25, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel, many widows who were close to God among God's people in Elijah's time, in that prophet's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath. You know those people that you hate? Sidon? Yeah, that's where he went. So he's like, remember this story in 1 Kings? Um, horrible famine covers the whole land. And prophet, uh, the prophet Elijah, he has to leave though because everyone's trying to kill him. And so where does he go? He goes to stay with a Phoenician widow. You know those Phoenicians who were right over on the coast that you Galileans all hate? So God's prophet goes there and she receives him and receives the word of God. And so God's people over here literally are starving to death. Well, this woman who's desperate and far from God receives God's word and experiences freedom, recovery, release. The year of the Lord's favor is proclaimed on her. Interesting story, huh? And he says, and there's another story. Um, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And he's like, remember the story? That was First Kings. Do you remember this in Second Kings? So in 2 Kings, there's this one um, where the people are living closest to God. They, they refuse to accept God's word. They refuse to accept God's prophet Elisha. And so God saves, instead of saving them, he saves Assyrian. Assyrian. The type of people you hate. Godless people. Like God's people are wasting away because they refuse to believe. And a desperate man far from God finds freedom, recovery, release. He says, you see these stories? That's a great story. Now, isn't it ironic how the people who are closest to God, how people who grow up hearing God's word, the people who grow up in church can't seem to see him when God's working right in front of their face. And meanwhile, those who are desperate and far from God see him, welcome him, and experience freedom, recovery, release, the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying, you might be familiar with me. You might know the street I grew up on. You might know all my stories. You might have attended these worship services your whole life. You might even be amazed by my teaching. But if you don't know me as your Savior, then you don't know me. If you don't see me as the hope that you've been looking for, then you don't see me at all. 
Jesus says, I'm going to go then. I'm going to leave this town of Nazareth. I'm going to leave everything, all these people who've been close to me my whole life. I'm going to leave them, and I'm going to go to a far-off place where I find people who are desperate and far from God because those are the people I'm coming after. And the congregation hears this message, and they get it. They get what Jesus is saying to them, and they are less than excited about it. How do we know? Verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, and they got up and drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. So, like, I've had some sermons go bad, but never once a lynch mob. All right? This is special. This is special. So verse 30, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. We don't know how that happened, whether it was miraculous, God allowed him to walk through, or whether they just got to the brow of the cliff and were like, hey, wait a second, we're about ready to kill the neighborhood kid. That, is that cool? <laughs> we, we don't know. But what we do know is Jesus walks away and they let him. I want you to hear this. God is standing right in front of your face and you missed him. Like the savior of the universe just announced his arrival. He's come to bring exactly what you've been looking for your whole life. And you're going to let him walk away. You missed him. He's standing in front of you, offering it to you. And you're going to let him walk away. So let's summarize this. Those who grew up with Jesus, those who know Jesus the best technically, right? Those who, um, who know all the stories, who've been going to the same synagogue with him for their whole lives, they manage to miss out on the very thing that they've been waiting for their whole lives. But people over here who are far from God, desperate for God, know that they are dying without God and have never actually sought him. They just, they know that they need something. They receive him and experience freedom, recovery, the year of the Lord's favor. That those most familiar with Jesus, the people who should know him, can't see the truth, can't see what's right in front of their face, and the desperate, the starving, the helpless, the hopeless, they're the ones who see the truth and experience life with God. Now here's the question. Here's the question that we're going to land on today. Why? Why do we have this story in our Bibles? Why does Luke, when he's writing down the Gospels, he could, he, he's, he's studied Jesus' life. It says at the beginning of his Gospel that he did this intense study and had all these stories. We know that there are thousands of stories he could have picked about Jesus. Why do you think he writes this? I mean, is he concerned about Nazareth at that point? Oh, they should have learned their lesson? I mean, I want you to think about this. When he writes this, this is old news. At least 30 years has passed since this happened. And by this time, everyone in Galilee has not only heard about Jesus, they've heard that he died and rose again. And there are now tens of thousands of followers of his all around that is spreading across the globe at this point. So when Luke writes this, he's writing to a generation. Hear this. When he writes this, he's writing to a generation that has grown up hearing the stories of Jesus. He's grown up to a generation where he's just repeating to them the story they've already heard, that in the year where Caesar Augustus issued a decree that everyone should go for a census back to their hometown. And so what did they do? Joseph and Mary, they go down to Bethlehem, the city of David. But when they get there, there's no room in the inn. So what do they do? They have to go, go out and sleep in a stable. And, and, they, and she has a baby in a manger. And then angels appear and the shepherds and blah, blah. Like they've heard the story. They've been to the little Christmas Eve service. Like they've done the little felt boards where they, they know all the stories. 
They've heard this. Why? Why does Luke want us to hear this? Can you imagine what it might be like if we heard the same story again and again, year after year? Can you imagine how familiar it might start to sound? Can you imagine what it might feel like to grow up with Jesus? It seems that Luke was concerned that someone who grew up in a world that was so familiar with Jesus and with the stories of Jesus that they might not be able to see Jesus. It seems that Luke is concerned that if we hear the same story over and over and over again, that familiarity might breed contempt. That we might be amazed by the awesome music and miss the point of the music. Listen, I am not opposed to flashy things and excitement of Christmas, the Christmas spirit. We're having an alpaca, for goodness sake. On Christmas Eve. Now that is something to celebrate right there. But if all we get out of Christmas. Is a photo of our kids petting an alpaca. Friends we've missed it. The very thing that you've been looking at your whole life. Might be available right in front of your face. And you can miss it. That if we aren't careful. We might miss it. That we might hear this story again and again. We might see this scene. And see whatever we want. And not see that God actually broke into the universe. To come after you. That God so loved you. That he came after you. That God is with us. That he's come to declare. You can be set free. You can know him. He's working here, now. It's almost as if Luke wants us to put ourselves in that synagogue. Like It's almost like Luke wants us right here, right now, to see Jesus unfurl, unroll that scroll and say, I am the servant of the Lord. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who will declare good news to those who are desperate. Are you desperate for him? I'm the one who will free you from the things that have been enslaving you. I'm the one who will bring recovery and release you've been seeking. I am right now here to tell you that if you believe in me, that if you trust in me, you can be set free from fear, from slavery, from what others think of you, from materialism, from thinking you have to earn your value through a career or through possessions, that you can know that you are loved by God, that you can know that God is with you, that Jesus is what you've been waiting for your whole life. It's like Luke wants us to hear that. He wants us to see that. But then the question is, do you see it? Do you see it? So if you don't see it this way, like if you, if that's just another like silly thing and another silly story and an old story, I, I, I just, if you're not there yet, um, can I just say it's okay? Like nobody's here to like, we're not um, the faith police where we're like going to force you to pretend like you believe. Oh, I believe. I'm talking to Jesus right now. Like we're, we're not, we're, this is not that atmosphere. Um, we want to help you take the next step in your walk with God because we believe that God is real and he is pursuing you. But we want to give you space to explore that. If you're here today, I don't want to pressure you to like, oh, you now have to see everything through the eyes of God is working immediately around you. And you'd be like, oh, look, I have a hot coffee. That's from God. 
Um, although it is, especially good coffee. But can I encourage you, can I encourage you that if you don't see God working in your life, if you don't see Jesus as your Savior, please keep looking. Please keep seeking. Seeking ye shall find. That's the promise. Can I just say, maybe your next step is praying, uh, God, I don't see it this way. And if you're really there, if you're really working, help me to see that. You know, one of my favorite prayers is from Mark chapter 9. There's this father who has a son who's really, really messed up somehow, sick, has an evil spirit. We're not quite sure what that means in that text, but it's bad. And so he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you can do anything, please help. And Jesus looks at him and says, if I can do anything? Do you know what his prayer is? His, His request to Jesus. I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe that's your prayer today. If you do see Jesus, if you know that he is the servant of the Lord, your Messiah, that he's come to set you free, that he's come to bring you recovery and healing, that he's called you to live just as a child of God, not to define yourself by what you make or what you do or what you look like, but to be a child of God, that you are loved by God. If you know those things, can I just encourage you, bask in it, live in it, reflect that. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your son all around us in our relationships in one another, in our singing. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to how you're working in the beauty of the snow and even in our pain and suffering that you're always there, Lord. God, I I pray for those who do not believe here today, Lord, that, that you would encourage them, that you would show yourself to them God, for those of us who do believe, Lord, I pray that you would, you would continue to spur us on, that we would not just say we, would believe, we believe, but we would live in that. We would live in your love, that we would set aside the things defining ourselves by what we do or what we own or how, what we look like, that we would bask in that. Thank you that your son has come to show us you, to show us your love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.